the, the British woman I grew up with was Jamaican and she was black. And so for me, Britain has never been separate from, from black people and has never been separate from, from Jamaica. And it's kind of just that simple uh, for me in a way that has actually then become a political project for me, that we cannot separate Britain from the Caribbean and we cannot uh, separate Britain from the black people who were British citizens and British subjects. Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonneau, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. This is season two, episode three, where we discuss Black British history, colonialism in the Caribbean, and decolonizing the university with Dr. Christina Fire. Dr. Fire, a historian of Britain and the Caribbean, focuses on Britain's imperial entanglements in the Caribbean region. Her work embeds modern British history within the fields of comparative slavery and emancipation. She's currently finishing a book about disaster politics and imperial governance in post-emancipation Jamaica. She occasionally comments about the state of higher education in the United States and the UK. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I want to begin with a Black British scholar, Paul Gilroy, who wrote in There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack with the following, quote, it is possible and necessary to approach Britain's colonial history by more satisfactory methodological routes. Its racial subjects need a more complex genealogy than those debates allow. Industrial decline has been intertwined with technological change, with immigration and settlement, with ideological racism and spatial segregation along economic and cultural lines. We need to grasp how their coming together took place in a desperate setting, which nonetheless allowed Black British communities over several generations to be recognized as political actors. They were irreducible to their class formations because racism entered into the multimodal processes in which classes were being constituted." End quote. As a lecturer in Black British history, he will also be a convener of the MA program that covers 500 years of Black British history. You have the key to reshaping the intellectual field. Why do you think it took so long for British Academy to develop this program, and how do you see yourself fitting into this paradigm? So I think there are a few reasons why it's taken so long for Black British history to emerge as a sort of named subfield in the British Academy. And I think some of these reasons are historical. Some of these reasons are sort of are structural in terms of how the academy works. Some of these reasons are, of course, about how Britain deals with race. I'll take the structural problem, the sort of structural uh, academic problem first. So. British history as practiced in Britain has tended to have a very strong division between British imperial history and sort of what is often referred to as British domestic history or history of the the British mainland. And because of that, that has tended to mean that there are experts in Britain, at least there are experts on the British empire. And then there are a different set of experts who are experts on British domestic history, which is sort of figured as the national history here in Britain for obvious reasons. And then there's often fairly little overlap between the two. I would say out of necessity, historians of the British Empire are up to speed on the basic outlines of British domestic history, but that the reverse is not necessarily true for the majority of practitioners here who work on the mainland. So that means that because of the way the British Empire was structured, because it was an overseas empire as opposed to a land empire, that a lot of the non-white subjects and non-white British subjects for most of the time period of British history up until the 20th century 
that they are living in other places in British colonies because of the separation between the British Empire and domestic Britain or mainland Britain, as it were, in, in, the, in the scholarship here. The histories of non-white peoples and then, by extension, the histories of race and racism seem to be thought of as histories of elsewhere. So at best, the British Empire, but often a different country entirely. So there tends to be a lot of looking to the United States as, well, that is where we think about race. And so you might see U.S., you know, British historians or British scholars who are historians of the United States who are thinking about race, but there seems there tends to not be as much focus on race in Britain. So that's one that's one reason. I think that's a really critical reason, and it's in real contrast to the U.S. Academy, where for about two decades British history was taught as British imperial history. So when I was in graduate school at Princeton. Although my advisor had not necessarily started as a British imperial historian, she was moving into some of that work in a way that a lot of uh, scholars of her generation were. And by by the time I was doing British history, you couldn't do it without on the British Empire. So it was already more it was already more in tune with ideas of race, even just thinking about race. That was much more of a factor in the U.S. Academy than it is here. So I've been quite surprised often to to see how certain scholarship is treated differently here. I have been to conferences where, unfortunately, people did not know who Paul Gilroy is, almost treated his mention as new scholarship. I mean, of course, that couldn't be further from the truth. Really, uh, a lot of scholars, I think, really struggle even to think about a slavery, for example. So even some historians of slavery here tend to do it in a way that is not as that is not sort of constantly referring back to the human atrocity at the heart of, of slavery. So there'll be a lot of sort of economic histories that are thinking about the goods that are moving back and forth and not even the human goods, but the literal sort of herring or cloth or metals. We need to know some of that stuff, but we also that always needs to be sort of ground back into the histories of slavery. So so that's the sort of structural issue. The historical issue is that Britain has really prided itself uh, and and sort of seen itself as a nation, as a liberal nation and a humanitarian nation because the abolition of the slave trade. And this has really sped up in recent uh, in recent years uh, after the uh, bicentennial celebrations of the 1807 uh, Act of Abolition that banned the slave trade. And so the national narrative and this this narrative was being created from 1807 onward. And, and I want to be clear for uh, for listeners who might not be familiar with the trajectory of, uh, of abolition. Slavery itself was not, was not abolished in the British context until 1834, and then there was a transitional labor system that was not abolished until 1838. So the making of this myth from 1807 is happening before slavery has even ended in, in the Caribbean. But it's fundamental to, I think, the British self-understanding of the nation as a liberal bulwark in the world. This myth about abolition is, I think, as important to Britain's sort of self-understanding as World War II. So I would say alongside with the idea that Britain defeated the Nazis is also Britain freed the slaves slash ended the slave trade. So because uh, because that myth is so strong, and when I say myth, it's, it's certainly not that Britain did not abolish the slave trade in those years, it's that abolitionists were racist. They did not believe in equality. What we see when we actually look at the post-emancipation period is not of a, of a real belief in the full humanity and equality of Black people in the Caribbean. So the myth that I'm referring to is the idea that this was done solely out of the goodness of uh, abolitionist hearts and as a sort of commitment to, anti, to anti-racism. 
But I think because that myth is so strong, it then becomes really difficult to look at the history of Black people in Britain. And it becomes really difficult to look at histories of discrimination, histories of racism that, uh, that both predate 1948 or the 1940s and also come after the 1940s. I think another reason why Black British history has really struggled to have a presence in the academy is because of those two terms, putting those two terms together. Because for a lot of people, they a lot of people think of the Windrush generation or the, the arrival of uh, newcomers from the Caribbean to the British mainland in the 1940s. They view that wave of migration as a migration of foreigners. So the idea that um, that these people from the Caribbean were foreign, uh, that Black people have always been foreign. And so with that narrative, it then becomes very difficult to be talking about a Black British history in the academy. And then I, I would also say just finally in terms of racism, which is, of course, you know, rife throughout much of certainly all the Western world, but again, which makes it rife in, in Britain and unfortunately rife throughout the academy. I think there's a real sense that racism is something that affects the United States that doesn't affect Britain, that anybody talking about racism in Britain is somehow racist themselves, or that there's, there are often ideas permeating the, the sort of national culture about um, how Black people should be grateful for being there. This came up this, this came up a few months ago with Stormzy, and it was a, an actual uh, professor at SOAS, I believe, who had, a, who had a tweet about how Stormzy should be thanking this country. And surely that should be the reverse. The country should be thanking Stormzy for his contribution to British music. That's a mistake. So these narratives are really pretty ingrained and they show up in, in a lot of really kind of subtle ways. And I think there's a lot of sense of there isn't enough history here. This isn't a history of British people. This isn't a history of the British nation. And so it's some other history that maybe we, we don't have to deal with. That has changed pretty dramatically, I think, in the last five years and even in the last two years. In the last five or so years, Black British history has sort of come to the fore in the academy. And certainly, I probably don't have all of them, but I think, I think these are some of the key ones. First of all, there have been a lot of campaigns, Roads Must Fall, both in South Africa and in Oxford. There have been a lot of calls to decolonize the curriculum. And I think in addition to that, the Windrush scandal, I think, has really rocked, not, I, I want to be clear, not necessarily Black British people who aren't surprised by the idea that the Home Office is not interested in preserving the citizenship of, uh, of Black British people. But I think the, the Windrush scandal really shocked a lot of white liberals in the academy, in media, in other professions as well, who had this moment of, oh, this is not, this is not what, who we are, this is not who our country is. And I think that that then pushed a lot of energy in certain directions. There was a way that the state failing Black people so catastrophically and to the point of death and in the Windrush scandal, I think particularly disturbing was the news that evidence of lawful arrivals had been physically destroyed by the state. That again, anybody with any familiarity of the British Empire is not necessarily surprised to hear that critical evidence is being destroyed. But again, it rocked a certain liberal understanding of, of the British of the British nation. And so I think all of this has sort of culminated in the idea of, well, one way to decolonize the curriculum is to do black British history. I would disagree that, that that those two things should be so tightly connected because I think it then shoves the decolonizing work into one specific field as opposed to this is something that we should all be taking up. But I do think it, it begins to account for why we are seeing a rise in Black British history 
as an institutional field. The problem is though, that these institutions haven't been training people in this field and in fact have been really dismissive of it for decades. And so trying to start up a field from nothing, at least within the academy is really, is really difficult. I also should say though, that black British history has been thriving outside of academia in the black community. There's been a number of, of people in particular, the British and Asian Studies Association uh, that began in the 1990s uh, that have really been trying to preserve this history, who have been gathering together community historians who are working in local archives, who are trying to even just document where were Black people during various aspects of British history, looking through parish records uh, and other kinds, of, uh, other kinds of records. So this really has been a community uh, endeavor to preserve this history and, and tell these histories. And the British Academy is just now catching up. Thank you so much for providing that context to what's happening in Britain and specifically the ways in which non-academic spaces or particularly outside of universities, people are documenting and creating their own archives. One of the things I was very much elated to see when in London was the CLR James Library and that within Hackney, a neighborhood in London, documenting the Black British presence in that neighborhood, in that community. And in a way that it, it was being very community driven and being from United States, I, I see less of that, especially because there's just such a major austerity for community-funded and art-related projects. I wanted to talk a little bit about your positionality and your intellectual journey. You are an African-American person with Caribbean and Black British heritage. How did that heritage help you along your path to becoming a historian? So, yes, I'm American, was born in the U.S. My father was African-American. And my mother was born in Jamaica, migrated to Britain. So she was part of the Windrush generation. So she migrated to Britain in the 1950s as a child, lived there for, lived in London for a, about 10 years or so, and then moved to the United States. And I think part of what that meant in terms of when I started, when I started to do history, and I had a very sort of secured, circuitous route to history. I did not go to university or to college to do history. Well, one thing I should say is that, um, that that is really key to the story is that, so my mother passed away when I was 18. Mm -hmm. um, and it was incredibly traumatic for reasons that I don't really want to go into uh, in the podcast, but I do think it was, it was at a moment when I was also trying to think about who I was. You know, when you're 18, 19, 20, you're trying to figure out who you are, who you come from, um, et cetera. And I had been to Jamaica, I, I, I'd been to Jamaica a few times growing up, but then I'd had this one particularly important trip when I was 16 when we went for my grandmother's funeral. And my mother actually took some of that time to sort of really take me around the island, which she had done before, but I was too, a little bit too young to fully process everything. So at 16, I had this sort of really transformative trip to Jamaica, really got to sort of see where she was from, have my own sort of ideas about it. And then after she passed away and when I was in university, and I, I was sort of gravitating towards a lot of Latin American studies courses. And I think I was there mainly because I was just trying to figure out how to learn more about Jamaica. And at, I went to Duke University and at that institution, it was, these things were sort of badged as Latin American and Caribbean studies. And I, I mean, I really enjoyed the Latin American studies courses I took. I'm really glad that I did them. I, it was good to have that kind of context, but very quickly it became clear to me that the Caribbean in that, in that setup actually really mainly meant Cuba then occasionally and rightfully, but still only occasionally Haiti. So basically the Haitian revolution was then the sort of bridge into the South American republics and on and on and on. And then Cuba would come in when we got to sort of the mid 20th century. And so 
I was just really kind of just trying to figure out how to study Jamaica. And I had always sort of understood very deeply, but did not really know how to articulate was that for me, Britain and Jamaica were always intertwined because my mother always talked about them basis, not interchangeably, but her Jamaicanness was always tied to her Britishness and vice versa, that they were never really all that separate. Like she, she had spent all that time she, and she had been a British citizen because she was born in Jamaica and these things were, um, were, were not separable. And I, and this is such a random story, but uh, I, I went to Britain in my sophomore year on a choir trip and I was excited to go because it was, you know, it was obviously the first time I was going to get to go and my mother and I had always wanted to go. And I sort of was thinking about it in those terms. I remember very distinctly, and this is such a this is such a minor thing that actually told told me everything I needed to know. This tour basically involved us going to like a lot of like church halls and and this kind of thing, and you know the the, the community would make us refreshments or whatever. And we were getting a lot of sandwiches made with butter, where it was like spread with butter instead of mayo. And everybody in the group except me found these kind of revolting. And I was like, I don't know what the problem is. Like, this is delicious. Like, and and it was, and I was like, and I was also like, this is how my mother made them. And it was in that moment I had not realized because I, 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 I'm not an only child, but my sister is so much older than me that I hadn't um, grown up with her. But I didn't realize that this wasn't what was happening in everybody else's childhood. That everybody else was just doing mayo, and that nobody else swapped the mayo for butter. And it was this moment where I realized, oh, I actually was raised by somebody who saw herself very much as British and who to her to her core was British. And so I think that kind of ch- shifted my intellectual direction in a little in, 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 in some ways to think about, so what does it mean to be British? Is to sort of move into British history, but always with this idea of Britain and Jamaica being being tied in, in, in some way. And so then I went, went on to graduate school and I was following this. And I will say that I think that conviction has put me in good stead now. I think I'm in, I'm in, I'm in the kinds of positions and in the kinds of conversations that I need to be in and that I want to be in from that background. But it, you know, it was seven, it was a lot of years of very active sort of positioning myself as this is the kind of work that I do and the kind of work that I do isn't this. So in particular, I've had a lot of people try to put me into the box of Atlantic world history. And you know, nothing against that 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 particular field, other than the fact that it pretty self consciously tries to cut off its bounds at like 1800 or 1825. So I always found this very strange because I don't, my work doesn't really start until 1850 or you know at the earliest 1838. So I always found this very strange. But I was I was always kind of like, no, I am a British historian who looks at Britain's relationship to the Caribbean. That's always that's it's been very very critical that way. But I think I had the conviction to fight against other people's questions about that because it was just like, well, but my mother, frankly, like the the British woman I grew that I grew up with was Jamaican and she was black. And so for me, Britain has never been separate from, from black people, has never been separate from, from Jamaica. And it's kind of just that simple uh, for me in a way that has actually then become a political project for me, that we cannot separate Britain from the Caribbean and we cannot uh, separate Britain from the black people who were British citizens and British subjects. And so to assume that Britain didn't have any kind of agency or role in the political makeup of Jamaica and other Caribbean islands that were tied to that British empire would be disingenuous at exactly. best. <laughs> so you're absolutely right that one has to look at that dialectical relationship and between what Britain is doing in the Caribbean and how people in the Caribbean, Black people in particular, were also part of and shaping um, what was happening across the pond. 
I wanted to turn to your work because you've written a couple articles that explore post-emancipation. One specifically looks at mental health asylum and the other looking at moral politics and post-emancipation Jamaica. How do you define post-emancipation and to what extent does it relate, if at all, to decoloniality or decolonization? So I define um, post-emancipation as, in the broadest sense, as anything since 1834 in in the British context. But more broadly, you can certainly apply this term to really any place, particularly in the Americas, after slavery ended. Now, I think a lot of scholarship will tend to really confine the post-emancipation period to a relatively narrow uh, stretch in time. So So basically from 1834, 1838, to in the Anglophone Caribbean to 1865. And 1865 is a moment there's a major uprising in Jamaica called the Morant Bay uh, Rebellion that usher, that the response to it ushers in some changes politically to the constitutional structure of Jamaica as a colony, basically involving more direct rule from London rather than the assembly, which had previously mostly been dominated by planters. But I think, I I don't like that really sort of narrow boundary of post-emancipation as simply this sort of 30-year stretch, and then we're sort of moving on to something else. Because those, those moments, I mean, this sounds simple, but those moments after 1865, are still post-emancipation. So for me, technically, it's a post-emancipation. We're still in a post-emancipation period. And I think it's important to think of it sort of metaphorically in that sense. Specifically to my research, though, I do think that, quote, post-1865, the idea of sort of bounding that short time period as post-emancipation and then everything else is something else, that the legacies of slavery, the legacies of emancipation sort of end at that moment and then it's never relevant or it's not, it's, it's less relevant to the politics of the later, the later time period. And I'm just not finding that in my own work. I think the, the legacies of emancipation, of abolition continue to trickle out both in the Caribbean, but also in Britain. Not least because, as I said earlier, Britain was getting a lot of mileage out of having ended the, the slave trade. And as one historian uses the phrase, a lot of um, moral capital from having done so. And that, in fact, allowed it or gave it sort of a ser- serving as a justification for further imperial expansion, in particular in the African continent. So I've begun to sort of refer to post-emancipation Jamaica, and I'm also starting to refer to post-slavery Britain. Because I think we talk about that late 19th century moment of British imperial expansion into the African continent as though it is somehow separate from slavery. And actually, the supposed ending of the the slave trade, which again happened 30 years before the actual abolition of slavery, that's providing a lot of justification for further endeavor, uh, for, for further imperial endeavor. And so I don't like to, to really sort of separate separate those two those two things. So given that, it's, of course, quite hard, quite difficult to talk about decolonization in the specific context of my work. I do think, though, that particularly when we're talking about things like decolonizing curriculums or just sort of a general decolonizing moment that's happening in Britain and and in British cultural discourse, part of what that requires, I think, is a full accounting of the actual colonial legacy. So part of what I'm doing in my work is to really juxtapose. So here, here mainland Britain is really sort of high on itself about having having abolished the slave trade. At the same time, it is increasingly unconcerned about the people that was supposed to, you know, all, there's all this humanitarian effort 
They're praising themselves for work, and they're not directing any of it increasingly to the free people of of Jamaica. Uh, and that juxtaposition, I think, is really critically important to to think about as we're in this moment of decolonizing, or of trying to decolonize. I'm not actually sure. I I believe that universities can decolonize, but in this moment of trying. Do you think colonialism or coloniality is coded in the former British colonies in the Caribbean uh, or, and or in the, the, the British universities today? So I'll take the first part. I mean, I think, and, and this actually extends beyond the Anglophone Caribbean, I think the Caribbean region is still completely enmeshed in all kinds of colonial arrangements. And this goes from the literal still colonies. So we have Puerto Rico, which is the, the, the example that is that is most to the fore at the moment. But also we there are still territories of Britain that are in the Caribbean. Martinique, Guadeloupe, and French Guiana are departments of France. I believe it's Aruba and Curaçao are still constituent countries of the Netherlands. So just at that, at that level, and then of course we have the US Virgin Islands um, as well. So just at that level, there are still literal colonial entanglements in terms of you know what you might refer to as international law. Beyond that, and actually I should say one one person whose work I really I really like on this front is uh, Yarimar Bonilla's Non-Sovereign Futures, in which she actually points out there are more islands and states in the Caribbean that are not independent than are. And I think it's just really important for us to be thinking about the Caribbean in that in that way. For those places that are, as she would put it, flag independent, that you know, do have national sovereignty, they're still just completely enmeshed in really onerous financial arrangements. So various forms of loan agreements with the uh, International Monetary Fund or the World Bank. So Jamaica is, of course, one of the one of these places, but there are others as well. And the the film it's 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 old now, but I still like to use it in teaching. Uh, Life and Debt is a really great film watched that years ago when I first got introduced to Jamaican history. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I was shown it as an undergrad and I still, it, it, so it's about 20 years old at this point and it, it still entirely holds up. And then, you know, of course, a place like Haiti, like the, the level of intervention that is continuing to come down from the United Nations, the U.S., the debt obligations that France is still not relinquishing Haiti from, on and on and on. So I think you know, colonialism and coloniality seems to me to be the real essence of the political structures in, in the Caribbean. I mean, if you think about this was a, this was this was a few years ago, but when the prime minister at the time, David Cameron, went to Jamaica, first of all, Britain is still refusing to apologize for slavery and the slave trade. So there are these really vague, you know, statements of regret that aren't actual apologies. But then he basically offered funds for uh, a prison. And that's just not, that's, that's not reparations. Um, that's not um, reparatory work. That's not an apology. That is continuing, that is offering money to continue to trap people in the state. And then certainly, I mean, one of the things that we're seeing with the, with the Windrush, uh, people, you know, people refer to the Windrush scandal as a Windrush scandal. And I actually think that scandal might have started off being an appropriate term, but I don't like it. So I now am, am shifting to Windrush crisis. But part of what the Windrush crisis is, is about deporting people back to the Caribbean. And so the, the claim that actually you don't belong here you belong in this other place. We're going to tell that other place that it must accept you back. 
you have had no connections or no meaningful connections with that place. Um, a lot of the people that they're trying to send back are people who are elderly, who came to Britain in their youth, and whose entire families came to Britain in, in their youth. So the idea that you know, there are no networks to, to, to be returning to, we're just going to continue to deport you back to this other place, um, I think is itself another form of coloniality, the sense of you don't belong here. And we're, we're going to send you back to, to, to where you came from. Now, certainly, I do want to make clear that we see this. This is not in, in Britain just towards the Caribbean. Certainly, the hostile environment is uh, is hostile for, for most migrants. But I do think there's a specific way that the relationship with the Caribbean is figured, not least because there's still literal colonies there. You pointing out the deportation of people who entered as British subjects. Uh, vis-a-vis the Windrush generation. And also, as, as British citizens. I feel like, I feel, you know, because the subject, I mean, they were subjects up until you know, 1948, and then that status changed the citizenship, and it was citizenship that was equal to citizenship of people in the mainland. Thank you for that clarification. As people who entered as British citizens, I think one of the things that I also find quite egregious is the denial for many of those people of NHS services. And there was one particular egregious case of someone who had cancer and was being um, told that they had to pay upfront thousands of dollars for cancer treatment. So the, the even among the liberals, this is absolutely inhumane in a society that has a service, a universal health service, but that can go up around and claim somehow that certain people don't belong or don't deserve that service. And the added irony there is that part of why Britain was requesting migration from from the Caribbean was to get the health service up and running in 1948. And these are the kinds of history, the sort of entanglement of history that we really need to have that we don't have if we keep the separation between oh, well, Black people aren't involved in British history. Then we have the NHS standing as completely tied and, and dependent upon the migration of large numbers of people to the mainland. To some extent, too, and I want to turn to your work, which has pointed out how British imperial history, and as you indicated before, tries to do the separation between itself and its Caribbean history, and then more specifically, how scholars see race as an irrelevant analytical category for modern British history. But you say that it is in part due to a longstanding marginalization of Black British history in the academy. And to what extent do you think an honest conversation about racial categories within the British Empire and within Britain today? especially post-Brexit, can help to decolonize history? I mean, I think it is is at least a necessary starting point. So I mentioned earlier that I am somewhat concerned about how the sort of decolonizing agenda is moving in, in Britain and in British universities do not mean the legitimate and theoretically rich calls from students and certain academics to decolonize. I think some of those are really are, are, are really substantive and important critiques, um, and certainly I would want to be moving in the direction that they're calling for. But what instead I am seeing a lot of is a lot of sort of uh, co-optation of the, of the phrasing of decolonizing by institutions. So institutions are now using this language to refer to really pretty weak initiatives. So as I see the the concept of decolonizing um, and decolonizing university spaces, that's a pretty radical project. One that involves thinking about um, sort of hierarchies of knowledge that requires, I mean, going as far as thinking about things like, you know, how are we doing grades? Are we doing grades? What is the purpose of, uh, what is the purpose of those forms of hierarchy? And 
you know, I mean, the UK university system is not getting rid of grades anytime soon. I mean, most, you know, to be fair, most university systems aren't getting rid of grades anytime soon. But the UK university system is particularly bound up in what it believes are meritocratic procedures, uh, and they really are very bureaucratic procedures, that it believes sort of assure quality across universities across the country, and that transpires through a, through, through a very rigid set of procedures to sort of basically almost certify grades. So this is a system where, you know, an academic or a lecturer or somebody in the classroom can't really assign 10 things to students to just sort of work through and learn through, and maybe some of them get graded, maybe some of them don't get graded, because all of that work has to be scrutinized by somebody else, which then gets scrutinized by another, by another sort of committees, and on and on and on and on. So, so it's really sort of interesting to me because I think I think the call for decolonizing or the language of decolonizing is much more common in Britain than certainly the other university system that I'm familiar with, the United States. Although it's possible that in the two and a half years since I left the U.S., that conversation has moved has moved forward more quickly. But it's never clear to me what it, it is supposed to mean when institutions are talking about it because they're never talking about getting rid of these like 10 layers of oversight to certify grades and minimize, you know, grade appeals or, you know, assure quality across, you know, across the nation um, or whatever it is that that's, that that's trying to do. So instead, I think this sort of decolonizing agenda as established by institutions is basically some tokenistic hiring. And I'll say some tokenistic hiring often of non-British people of color who have been trained in a different system that the British system, the British system and in particular the North American systems train students very, very differently. And it seems clear to me that increasingly the North American system is appealing or the, the, the students who come out of the North American system are appealing, the scholars who come out of that are appealing, but the British system is not is, is not one that can produce those kinds of scholars in large numbers because of shorter degrees, different uh, different approaches, you know, on and on and on. And so there is no, so, so there's some tokenistic hiring that does not necessarily need to focus on moving large numbers of British people of color, whether those be uh, uh, Black British scholars or British uh, scholars of South Asian descent, moving them through the field in, in significant numbers. Because I think to do so and to deal with what a lot of people refer to as an attainment gap, but I prefer, I, I joined with some colleagues in referring to that as an awarding gap. So it's, the issue is not that students can't attain, it is what they're being awarded. I think that the current system will, will continue to struggle to do that in the numbers that we need unless we're willing to, to engage in some really serious rethinking discussion. So I do, but you know, to answer your question, I do think talking about race and being comfortable talking about race is a starting point. And it's, it can be quite surprising how uncomfortable people are talking about race in this country. Yeah. They're just... <laughs> I absolutely understand. I That's living in I Europe, I, I, I encounter that. But in some ways, I think that that it's okay to have a starting point of discomfort so long yes. as the person has the intention to learn and to trust the kind of movement of those who've been targeted by these systems of oppression, by racism, the descendants of colonialism, etc. And and I think that that honesty, that discomfort, and the willingness to really do the groundwork to reshuffle the system can can go a long way. Actually, I think I think what you said is 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 so important. Yeah, it's it's not the discomfort. Mm -hmm. It is whether the discomfort is something that gets pushed through 
for the purposes of having a broader conversation, no matter how difficult, or whether the discomfort then becomes an opportunity to lash out or shut down the, the conversation. And I think too often I'm seeing the latter in, in and, you know, again, it's not necessarily, I don't want to suggest that all of these conversations are, are ending in like, you know, Mars lashing out. But I do think that the, the, the level of discomfort then turns to a, well, this is just not that important. Or this is, you know, this is, I, I've, I've heard very frequently the phrase, um, oh, well, those are just your heightened concerns as an American. How do we, how do we start thinking about what university education can do and who it's for? And how do we make sure that it is tailored towards the students that we need to be reaching? Those conversations can't be had if we're busy with sort of like, well, race doesn't apply here. Yeah, and in some ways you pointed out to what how some people might be misusing the term decolonization for administrative or university-ended gains and yes. have placeholders and tokens. But then there's also the agency that people like yourself have. And mm-hmm. in particular, you have an article that is a series of interviews with several other scholars entitled History on the Line, Decolonizing History, Inquiry, and Practice. And during that conversation, you unpack decolonization as a process of critique decolonization as an urgent and unfinished project that has to be able to seek to diversify and rethink how history is taught and understood while still paying attention to the ways that inequalities live in British society today and beyond. And so how did this collective form and what was the intellectual kind of process for you to come together with these other scholars who are committed to creating a decolonial intellectual community? I really enjoyed being part of this group of scholars. And I think most of us are at institutions or, you know, so at the time I started, I was at, uh, I was at the University of Liverpool. Now I'm not. But I, th- I think most of us were based roughly in the north of the country, so the north of England, and I believe one or two people are, are, are based in Edinburgh. And so I think actually the, the I, I came to the project uh, relatively late. Um, not to the article late, but to the project uh, relatively late, because I think it came out of first a series of conferences and workshops based at the University of York, where uh, Amanda Beam in particular was organizing a series of conversations uh, around these questions. And then I was invited to participate in this particular sort of conversation uh, kind of piece. And the process for us, so so I should say, uh, I know uh, in person, I know Amanda, we have been involved in some projects together back in the U.S. And then uh, I had met in person Emma Hunter, but then the other scholars, some of them I knew on, I knew on Twitter and others I didn't know uh, at all. So it was also a really good opportunity to just get in dialogue with some people working in, in the country in areas and fields that I'm not necessarily all that familiar with and just to sort of see how we're sort of coming to similar ideas or where we're challenging each other coming up or, you know, making, making suggestions. That was a really good process. The majority of it actually happened by Google Docs, which is an amazing platform for this for this kind of work and I believe it was Amanda who was able to get some funding for people to actually get down to to London and there was sort of a there was like a half day workshop that people did I actually was not able to attend to attend that because I was uh, out of the country but from that vantage point it was clear to me how much had how, how rich those discussions in person had been and how the piece really I think lifted from those discussions and I really wish uh, I'd been able to to be at that meeting. So I think there were it started with some general questions that we all sort of answered and then from there we started responding to 
critiquing each other's ideas and sort of pushing each other uh, over. And it was over the course of a few months, uh, as the piece um, as the piece suggests in the opening. I think what was really interesting about the the initial framing of it was the idea of connecting the historical process of decolonization with the sort of theoretical ideas of decolonizing now, decolonizing curriculum now. Those have not always been put together. And so the question that we kind of started with is, can you talk about decolonizing curriculum, decolonizing institutions without a context or without thinking through the actual historical processes of decolonizing and ending empire? Some of us were in the group were historians of decolonization, some of us weren't. So I'm not uh, at the moment a historian of decolonization, although I do see some of my work is actually moving in that, moving towards that time period. But it was a, it was still a really good conversation. I think some people in, in the collective think the two things must be connected. I think others of us, probably including myself, don't think they necessarily have to be. But nonetheless, keeping, keeping in mind what it is, the historical process that we're referring to when we think about decolonizing in the present, that seems to me to be like a really incredibly important initiative. Do you have hope that some of the initiatives that you've been involved in that are trying to not just decolonize academic institutions, but also, you know, how we think about Britain, how we move through a space in a world that is also engaged in the rise of the far right and a a nativist kind of turn, as well as, you know, a, a space that hasn't fully reckoned with its colonial history. Are there glimmers of hope that you can point to that can show that decolonization or decoloniality is is living in the veins of post-colonial subjects? So it's always hard for me with, with, with questions about do I have hope because I am a natural <laughs> pessimist. <laughs> just just by like just by nature it's it's horrible. But so here's here's what I'll say. I think one of the things that I'm actually incredibly excited about is that I do think the sort of younger generation, and by young, by younger generation, I basically just mean Black British people in their 20s um, and maybe early 30s. I, I think there's a lot of energy coming from them. And I think there are a number of them who I know who are in PhD programs at the moment, who are doing incredibly interesting projects, who are incredibly rich thinkers on, on Twitter and in other spaces. And I do think that when they start getting into academic positions, they're just going to completely shift the conversation in ways that I'm very, very excited about. I, th- I think there's a there's a real sense from younger Black British people, particularly scholars, but not only scholars, cultural commentators, etc. That actually, this, these ideas about what Britain is that that they're no longer they're fundamentally not buying into them, and it's not this process of sort of slowly unlearning what where society is that I think people in my generation have gone through. So I have a very distinct memory. You know, I grew up in a very conservative area of the U.S. and in, in the military area prior to 9-11. And so, yeah, I really had bought in. And I think a lot of, uh, not all, but a lot of Black people my age had bought into various aspects of the national narrative. And, you know, it does help to do some Latin American studies. And that will start, you, you take enough of those classes and you start shifting your views on what the U.S. is and has been. But I think also just the, the, the moment for me of sort of a succession of Black people being killed at the hands of state agents was a really sobering one. But that process of basically spending my whole 20s, like coming to this realization was an important one, but is, you know, that that's a lot of time that has been used up in my own in my own awakening. And I think I'm really excited about 
hearing, and I think one of the things I think you asked me earlier, what I hope for from the MA that I'm going to be running is I really kind of want to just create a platform and, and a space for people to get a foothold into the academy and then start changing the academy from that position of we have never bought into the claims that this nation is making about itself. And I think that's a very powerful place to be doing historical work from. It gives you a different lens on historical work. I think to some degree I had that lens because this isn't the nation I grew up in. It's a nation I have, I have, I still have family uh, who, who live in Britain and I have uh, Black British and Caribbean heritage, but I was always able to critique the nation because it wasn't mine. And I do think that to have people who are British making those critiques from the jump is going to be so exciting and, and such, and such a powerful voice. I think we're, we're starting to see it in music. So of course, I mentioned Storm Zero here, but Dave's performance at the Brits was another one of these moments where you can just see a lack of deference to the state in cultural production. And I think when people start moving through the academy in large numbers and, and taking up, hopefully taking up uh, positions as academics, that we will also see that kind of scholarly production from that vantage point. And that is incredibly exciting to me. I think that excitement speaks to what Claudia Jones, socialist communist, once said, which is a people's art is the genesis of their freedom. And at this moment, people, particularly Black British people, are generating that right now. So I think that that's that's an amazing way to, to end. So thank you so much for joining me. Dr. Christina Fryer, and you can follow her at S-E-E-F-R-Y-A-R on Twitter. Thank you for having me. My name is Edgar Bonneau, and you're listening to the Decolonization in Action podcast, Season 2, Episode 3. This episode featured digitally-based voices who live in Berlin, Germany, and Liverpool, England. To learn more about the podcast, get access to the bibliography, or find out more about the people referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at DecInAction, D-E-C-I-N-A-C-T-I-O-N. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, comment, and share the podcast with two of your friends. You can find the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I would like to express my gratitude to Christina Comer for her assistance in editing and in production for this episode. Thank you for joining us, and please stay safe and learn.